We are in the Gospel of John, chapter 9. We're actually going to wrap up chapter 9 today, and it'll be next year uh, before we get to chapter 10. So we're going to wrap up chapter 9 today. Next Sunday starts our Advent series. I'm really excited about where God has led us for the Advent series this year. I hope it'll be super encouraging for you, because chances are you've had a really hard year. And uh, so we want to end this year together as God's people resting in what Jesus has done for us, and that's going to be our series coming up. But today we're in chapter 9. We're going to wrap up chapter 9 looking at uh, the story of the man who was born blind who had been healed. And so if you want to follow along in God's Word, there are Bibles under the seats around you. And uh, as we mentioned from time to time, if you don't have a Bible, that's our free gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. Take that thing with you. Uh, nobody's going to chase you down or tackle you uh, if, you're, if you're carrying one of those things out of here. So just feel free. That's, that's yours. All right, so um, we're going to start in verse uh, 35. Uh, if you've got your, your Bibles ready to go. Uh, and really, our, our focus is going to be 35 through 38, and then we'll, but we'll make it all the way through 41. So I want to start here with uh, 35. So Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So chapter 9 is really this, this story, not only of a man who was born blind, who has received his sight, but really of a man who was also born in spiritual darkness, who comes to know Jesus as the Messiah. And if you read through chapter 9, you'll see a progression in the blind man's acknowledgement of who Jesus is. So the, the blind man who had been healed, he's interrogated by his friends, he's interrogated by the Pharisees, his parents are interrogated, and, and along the way, he makes different statements. The first statement is, I don't know um, who this man is or how he healed me, but it was that man. He just refers to Jesus as that man. And later on, he's going to refer to Jesus as a prophet, and then he's going to refer to himself as one of Jesus' disciples. And so now, as we get to the end of chapter 9, he's referring to him as the Lord. And so the question Jesus asks him is a really important question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Which may be a, a, a kind of an interesting phrase or title for Jesus, right? So the Son of Man is, is an Old Testament reference to the Messiah who would come, the Christ, the one that God would send. And so the Old Testament is really the unfolding story of God's plan to rescue the nations through a Messiah, and so the understanding was that this Messiah would be the Son of God and also the Son of Man, both being fully God, fully man. And so when you see that, that title given to Jesus, that's what it's referring to. So essentially, he's asking this blind man, do you believe in the Messiah? And so then he asked the question, well, how can I believe in the Messiah? I don't know which one he is. And Jesus says, the one who is speaking to you is the Messiah. And his response is, well, then, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. Now, what, a, what an encouraging story for us. Okay, so what we're going to see is really a contrast between this man who was born blind and who has now been healed, a contrast between his perspective on Jesus versus the perspective of the religious leaders of the day. So, so far, there's been a, they've been very antagonistic towards Jesus, even plotting to arrest him, and one reference has already been made um, to the fact that they really wanted to kill him and put him to death. And so now, here we are at the end of chapter 9. This man has been healed by Jesus, and he has made the statement, I believe you are the Messiah, I believe in you. 
But I don't know if you picked up on the beginning of this in verse 35, when Jesus heard that the man had been cast out. So if you remember last week, at the end of last week's sermon, what we saw is that because this man born blind would not deny that Jesus was his healer, that the the Pharisees then cast him out of the synagogue, which means that he was excommunicated from the faith, which was deeply embedded in the culture, and essentially he was excommunicated from the culture. So he wasn't just cast out from the temple, he was cast out from society. He was now an outcast. If he wasn't one before because he was born blind, he is now outcast. Even his own family isn't coming to his rescue. His friends are not coming to his rescue. So now he's an outcast. But what I wanna point out is what Jesus does. He hears that he's been cast out and then what did he do? He went and found him. Okay, so this guy didn't get cast out of the synagogue and go, well, I don't know what I'm gonna do next. I guess I'll go see what Jesus is up to. The man's cast out. And Jesus doesn't leave him cast out, doesn't leave him abandoned, but he goes and he finds him. Now, you're gonna see all throughout the Gospel of John that the Pharisees fail to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. Let me just say this. It's not because God changed his plans. So the Old Testament is this unfolding description of God's plans, description after description prophecy after prophecy of what to look for in the Messiah. Now, if God had changed his plans, we would understand why the Pharisees missed it because they were students of the Old Testament. They were students of the prophecies. So they should know better than anyone what to be looking for. And if God had changed his plan at the last minute, it would make sense for them to go, oh, well, we didn't recognize you because you look different. But God didn't change his plan, right? Everything that Jesus is doing is fulfilling all those Old Testament descriptions and prophecies I just want to read one today from Zephaniah, an Old Testament description that not only describes how to recognize the Messiah, but also what would be going on in the culture in which the Messiah would be born. And in Zephaniah chapter three, the first four verses describe Jerusalem going astray, the people of God going astray. And then we get an explanation why, that when you see a city going astray or a group of people going astray, it's because their leaders are leading them astray. Listen to these first four verses of Zephaniah describing the time in which the Messiah would be born. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice, she accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Does that sound like the Pharisees? Receive no correction. Listen to verse three. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The teachers of the law doing violence to the law, killing it, destroying it, distorting it. That's an accurate description of the religious leaders of Jesus' time. But then look at verse 15, this description of what will happen when the Messiah comes. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, that's the Messiah, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. 
On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your, your hands grow weak. Why? Because verse 17, the Lord, the Messiah, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. This is a reference to that day when the Messiah comes, the Lord, the mighty one, and listen to what he will do. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. That's where we're gonna end today. Jesus is gonna deal with the blind man's oppressors. I will deal with your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. How do you know when the Messiah comes? Because Jerusalem will have gone astray. The teachers of the law of Jerusalem, the priests, the leaders, they will have done violence to the law. They won't listen to correction. They won't listen to God. But when God shows up as the son of man, how will you know who he is? Because he's gonna go after the outcast. He's gonna go after the, the, low of the, the lowest of the low in society. He will not only gather the outcast, he will save the lame and he will change their shame into what? Into praise. What a beautiful description of John chapter nine, isn't it? Now, I wanna look at a couple of other uh, references here. I wanna look at Mark chapter two with you. Another instance where Jesus is being accused of hanging out with outcasts. If you know this or not, but Jesus was oftentimes accused by the Pharisees of being somebody who got too close to the outcasts, too close to the sinners, too close to the Pharisees. Listen to Mark chapter two upon one of those instances, verse 15. And as he, that's Jesus, reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Many what? Many outcasts. Verse 16, and the scribes, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your rabbi spend so much time with the lowly, with the outcasts, with the rebels? Jesus, verse 17, when he heard it, he said to them, I'll answer that question. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he says this, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So we hear that Jesus goes after the outcast and our temptation is to applaud him. Oh, good job, Jesus. I'm so thankful somebody has compassion for the outcast. But it's not like Jesus came to save a bunch of, few, a bunch of people and a few of them are outcasts. That's all Jesus came from, for. I didn't come for those who think that they're well, who think that they have it together. I came for those who know that they're sick, those who know that they're in need, those who know that they're outcasts. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter one. The apostle Paul is describing those who Jesus came to save and this is written to the church. Verse 26, the apostle Paul sends us all a reminder. 
For consider your calling brothers, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Who did God choose? Did he choose the wise? No. Did he choose the powerful? No. Did he choose the noble? No. Who did he choose? He chose the foolish. He chose the weak. He chose the low and the despised. Church, listen to me. I love you. That's you. You're the outcast. I'm the outcast. Jesus came not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. Those who have been cast out. Those who have been carrying the burden of of shame and guilt. Those who have been in bondage to spiritual blindness. Jesus came to save the outcast. Church, that's us. And so now Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders who think that they have it all figured out. The rebellious leaders who will not be corrected by God. And we pick this up in verse 39. So now he's gonna turn his attention to the Pharisees. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. So there's two different groups of people. There are gonna be those who know they're blind, who wanna see, and those who think that they see, but they're actually blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we blind also? Okay, this is like junior high talk, like, you talking to me? That's essentially what they're doing. Are you talking about us? We, we hear what you're saying, Jesus. Go ahead and say, are you talking to us? And then look at Jesus' response in verse 41. He said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. It's the fact that you think that you're well. You think that you see. You think that you know. Your pride, your arrogance, your self-righteousness are causing you to be spiritually blind. You're missing the Messiah. I'm right here. I'm right here in front of you. You guys know the prophecies, and yet your arrogance is keeping you from seeing. You're actually blind. This reminds me of what Jesus said earlier in John chapter three. Jesus is actually speaking to um, one of the religious leaders um, in secret, and he's talking about being born again. And then we get to John 3.16, which most of us know that by heart, but right after John 3.16, Jesus talks about the light and the darkness. He says in verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So the, the metaphor here is like when you're asleep, and it's dark, and somebody walks in and flips on the light. Don't you hate that? Like, nobody goes, oh, thank you, now I can see. It's like, no, turn it off, I'm not ready to see. 
And that's a really weak metaphor for the spiritual blindness. So Jesus comes into the world to be the light, and the Pharisees are like, turn it off. We hate it. Why? Because to, to embrace the light, to walk in light, meant that all their deeds would be exposed. Their hearts would be fully seen. And so they hate the light that Jesus has brought into the world. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Do you remember why the, the blind man was born blind? Jesus said, so that the works of God might be displayed. Here in this reference, whoever comes into, uh, who, who, everyone who does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works may be carried out in God. This is the idea here. So the blind man who was born blind, who can physically now see, was actually born spiritually blind as well. And now he sees spiritually. He, why? Because he's been born again. We're just saying, may the vision of you be the death of me. We're talking about is the good death of dying to self, the good death of dying to arrogance, the good death of dying to self-righteousness, the good death of standing on our own strength. And so the, the blind man, the old, the old man has now been what? buried with Christ. The blind man is now spiritually dead, and he's been raised to walk in a new life. He's been born again. Colossians says he's been transformed or transitioned from the, 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 uh, the dominion of darkness now to walk in the kingdom of light. Ephesians 2 says that he was a dead man walking, and now he's been made alive in Christ. And so I want to focus in now on his confession, Lord, I believe. Far too often in the church, we only say, I believe. And it's really important to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. Somewhere, and many of you who are my age or older remember a time where in the church, a popular teaching emerged where we separated salvation from lordship. And we said, hey, maybe some of you here today, you're, you're in Christ, you've been saved, but you haven't made him your Lord, and so you need to do that today. Some of you are nodding your heads. You've heard that teaching. I heard that teaching. He's your Savior. Now make him your, your Lord. Listen, there aren't two men named Jesus. There aren't two sons of God named Jesus. He is both Savior and Lord. If he's not your Lord, he's not your Savior. Are you with me? Like the, the acknowledgement, I believe, and yet I still want to stand on my own two feet. I want life insurance so when I die, I know I'm going to heaven, but I don't want any lordship to interrupt my plans. Right? So it's not just I believe. It's like, no, I believe in submission to Jesus as the son of God. He's the king of the universe. He's the Lord of my life. This... uh. So two summers ago, um, had the privilege to uh, our family to build a new house. And we had a, the opportunity to do a lot of it ourselves. And so the boys got to be involved in that and, and helping us build the house. But, but before we started building, um, Hallie and I had started designing. We actually designed the house too, like drew it all out and kind of figured out where we wanted things to happen. And we talked a lot about our values, how we wanted our values and convictions to be represented in, in the design of the house. And so it wasn't just that we designed it, like we put our hearts into the design. And so once it came time to build, arguably, nobody knew the design better than I did, right? And so I could be somewhere else, get a phone call from somebody who was at the house, 
hey, let me ask you a question about this wall or this dimension, whatever it was. And I had the answer. Why? Because I designed it, like memorized it. The dimensions of rooms and bathrooms and hallways, which ways doors swung and the size of windows and the pitch of the roof and all these things I had memorized because I designed it. Listen, people, God designed the universe, not just functionally, but yes, functionally. He understands the solar system. He understands the galaxies. He understands the rotation of the earth and seasons and all that. He understands, but listen, he designed your heart. He designed you. He's your designer and creator. And how foolish it is for us to say to our designer, you don't understand. I know better than you. It would have been like, think about how arrogant it would have been for somebody to walk onto, uh, into our construction project and to say to me, ah, oh, you built it wrong. This wall's not in the right place. What do you mean? It's where I meant for it to be. It may not be where you want it, but it's where I wanted it. And then, and then multiply that times billions upon billions, how arrogant it is for us to look at God and say, you messed up. You do not know. The prophet Isaiah talks about our humility and our understanding of God as our Lord and King and his position of authority over us. Listen to Isaiah 55, starting in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Listen to this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. Do you believe that? Do you really believe it? It's easy for me to say yes, but then why do I still find myself chasing my own thoughts and going my own way? It's one thing to say I believe it. It's another thing to live it out, isn't it? My thought, your thoughts, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declared the Lord. For, listen, as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts, your thoughts. We read chapter nine of John in light of that, and the conversation the Pharisees are having with Jesus, the creator. We begin to see the arrogance and the ignorance of it, don't we? Are you kidding me? You're questioning the creator? You're questioning the author of the law about the law, right? You're, you're questioning the creator of the heart of man about his heart, and yet don't we do the same? When we read God's word and we go, no, that sounds okay, but I think I'm gonna do something else. When we allow our moral compass to be defined by what we feel in our gut, what should be right. And we will throw out these statements like, well, God just wants me to be happy, you know what? He, he wants you to be immensely filled with joy, but it won't be in pursuing your own way. And there are things that seem right to us, but in the end, guess what they lead to? Death. There's a way that seems right to you in your gut, a way that seems like it'll lead to pleasure, and the pleasure may be there for a moment, but in the end, it leads to destruction and death. I was having a conversation with somebody this past week about the difference between good and better, and, and as Christians, for the most part, I hear what you pray for and what I pray for and I read our prayer requests and we pray for good things, but God doesn't always do it. Do you notice that? Praying for something good, God doesn't do it. Why? Because God doesn't settle for good, right? His desire and his ambition is for what's best, what's better than good. And listen, 
to, to believe that is to say, you know what? I'm gonna believe that even if what's going on in my life does not feel better than what I prayed for because listen, part of God's unfolding plans for your life might include some hardship. The pathway that leads to heaven is narrow. It's hard, it's difficult. Think about this blind man. I mean, he lost everything in one moment of healing. He lost everything. Family, friends, neighbors, his, his religious support system, gone. But it was better than what he had before, wasn't it? It was better. And so if we claim that Jesus is our Lord, then we submit to his ways, not ours. We submit to his thought, not ours. We submit to his wisdom. Why? Oh, because we just remind ourselves that he chose the foolish in the world. That's us. That's us, church. We hear that, and how much more we should lean into his wisdom, lean into his understanding. God, I don't know what to do in this situation. Our first step, not our last step, should be what? To open the counsel of his word. Any place in our lives we're claiming something to be true that doesn't align with the truth of God's word is not true. No matter how much you want it to be true, it's not true, church. Listen, I'm saying this and it's bouncing off the wall, coming right back at me, okay? I'm with you. The, care, the, the truth of God's word does not change and the moral compass of God's word does not change because he doesn't change. Are you hearing me? Like he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. A God who changes is not worthy to be worshiped. Our God does not change. He does not shift like the sand. And so I can't just call things good that aren't good. And listen, if we walk in arrogance, we'll be just like the Pharisees walking in spiritual blindness. So I wanna ask a couple of questions as we wrap up here today. Have you come to the place in your life where you have declared, Lord, I believe? Not just I believe, but Lord, I believe. That declaration of your deep need for a savior and your recognition of Jesus as Lord. Your savior is a king. Hear me, church. Our savior is a king. Have you come to the place in your life where you've made that declaration, Lord, King Jesus, I believe. If not, we want you to make that decision before you leave here today. There's not a process you go to. You have to go to a class. Like this guy, all this happened in an instant for this guy. It can happen for you today by taking that step to acknowledge that Jesus is your king and that you need him as your savior. For the rest of us who far too often drift towards being Pharisees, for the rest of us who've already made that declaration but all too often lose sight of the Lord component of our salvation, just a couple of questions. Do you think there could be possibly any areas in your life which you could still be walking in spiritual blindness? In other words, you don't fully see yet. Something you still need God to shine light on, to to show you what is true. Maybe it's something in your heart. And if you're not quite sure how to answer that question, I'll ask a couple of follow-up questions to kind of help us diagnose where we or you might be walking in spiritual blindness. First one is this, in what area of your life are you tempted to lean on your own understanding rather than seek the wisdom of the Lord? Because when you're leaning on your own understanding, you're leaning on spiritual blindness. Let me ask it this way. Is there any area of your life 
where you struggle to submit yourself to God's word. Not, not, not to me, not to the elders, not to the church, God's word. Like you know what it says, you don't like it, you don't agree with it, you don't understand it. Is there any area in your life where you're struggling to submit yourself to the counsel of God's word? Because if so, there might be an area of your life you're walking in spiritual blindness. And so I'm gonna pray in just a minute that King Jesus would come be the light in this place. Like right now in our hearts, um, if you're here today and First of all, let me just say this. If the light hurts, be warned, right? If the light of Jesus hurts, it's because there's some spiritual darkness, and that's me included. But but here's what I want you to, I'm gonna pray that Jesus would come be the light in a way that draws you to himself because that's the story of Christmas. God has come to be near to us and to draw you to himself. And if you're here today, you're not a Christian, you've never taken that step of faith, I'm gonna pray you'd take that step today. Lord, I believe for those of us who are Christians, that we would take a minute to think about it. Any areas in my life where I'm struggling to submit myself to Jesus as my king, and maybe today would be that day where you just you turn that over to the Lord. So we'll pray together. Um, our worship team's gonna come up, uh, and then we're gonna respond. If there's a next step that you feel like God's calling you to take, I want you to take that today. Um, you can always fill out the card. If you're online, you can fill out um, on the app, or you can email us. But you, if you're here in person, come grab us. Let us know what that next step is that God's calling you to take. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this powerful message from John chapter nine. And Father, today we just recognize how every person in the room, uh, we're the blind man in this story. We're the outcast. We're the one who desperately needs not just to be healed physically, but to to be healed spiritually. And so this morning, we, we declare together that you are the Lord and we need you and that we believe. And Father, we know that even in saying that, that Father, oftentimes there are parts of our hearts, parts of our lives that we have yet to hand over to you. And so maybe today we would ask that you would just expose that, shine a light on any area of our life where we're walking in rebellion or ignorance or leaning leaning on our own understanding, God, that we could turn that over to your Lordship today. You truly are King Jesus. And as we just sang, even though you're here, come. What we mean by that is we're opening up our hearts for you to come and to work in us, to work on us. Father, we pray any person here that does not know you would take that step of faith today to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We pray this all in your precious name.